0: Three years ago, I wrote an email to the person who had been the campus director for a college ministry I was involved in at the University of Michigan uh, called Campus Crusade for Christ. It's now called Crew. I wanted to share that email with you, and this is what I wrote three years ago. Uh, It's to a man named Abe. Uh, Abe, my name is Jim Sammer, and I was a student at the University of Michigan from 1990 to 1995 and was involved with Campus Crusade while you were the campus director. I have often thought of you fondly over the past year since I graduated and wondered what the Lord had done with you since those days at Michigan. In addition, there was something that in the past while or so, I had wanted to apologize to you for. I don't have any gross sin to disclose for which I am thankful, nor did I have evil or malicious intentions for which I need to repent. However, now that I am a pastor, I realize that I was not nearly as supportive of your leadership as I would want to be now. I understand better now the weight of leading a ministry and the difficulties and spiritual warfare that comes with it. I do not recall ever doing anything intentionally divisive, but I was an arrogant 18-year-old who always thought things could be done differently and better. I wish now that I had been more encouraging and supportive both directly to you and when I was involved in late night discussions about you in dorms and libraries. On one hand, it could be argued, what 18 year old knows better? On the other hand, ignorance doesn't excuse sin. Now that I'm 45 and do know better, It seemed appropriate to apologize if there was any way in which I made your life more difficult as campus director. Hebrews 13, 17 says, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no benefit to you. I pray that if I in any way contributed to your ministry at Michigan being a burden, rather than a joy that you would forgive me. Thank you for you and Jennifer's service to the Lord. My time in crusade was a blessing. I am sure that is one of the reasons why I am in full-time ministry now. Thank you for giving of your time to college students and for working hard in the Lord. I don't know all that you did and never will, but being in a position like I am in currently, I know something of the hard work you must have put in. May the Lord bless you in this. I pray that you would have fond memories of your time at Michigan and that you will consider what I am doing now as a pastor to be part of that fruit. With gratitude, uh, me. <laughs> you know, I'd got a very nice email back from Abe who was very encouraging, and either the Lord had caused him to forget what a difficult person I was to lead, or he was just being gracious but I love the line he put in there. I didn't share that with you, but he's like, you know, I don't remember anything, but if the spirit laid this on your heart, then I accept your apology and I forgive you. It was a great email exchange again. It took place three years ago. I just felt for whatever reason, three years ago, I just needed to tell him that. But as I've been reflecting, and part of the reason why I think three years ago, I felt compelled to write that email, is I've thought to myself and asked myself this question in the past. What would have happened if Abe hadn't been willing to suffer for me? What if he had just kicked me out? He would have had many reasons to do so. Or what if he had just quit? What if he decided, you know what, these college students, it's like herding cats. It's difficult to get them to do anything that I'm trying to get them to do. And if he just said, forget it, I quit. I asked myself, well, where would I be today? if instead of a positive experience at Michigan, that experience in Christian ministry had been negative, maybe I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing today. And as I think about all the suffering that I put him through, I'm also reminded of the fact that he was willing to endure that so that the Lord could take the time it was necessary to knock off some of the rough edges, to get rid of some of the arrogance, to help me to see Leading's a lot harder than it is, than you might think it is, when you're in the position of following. Now, if that's true of Abe, how much more is it true of Lisa, my wife? Now, in the first service, she was here, and she gave a big, loud amen uh, to that point. But it's true. I think to myself, of all the stuff she's gone through because of my sins and shortcomings and immaturity... And that when God asked her to marry me, he was signing her up for some suffering. But I think, where would I be if she quit in the middle of it? Where would I be if she wouldn't agree to go through that? For whatever reason, it was necessary to have that amount of time for the Lord to do the work that he needed to do. Not just true, of course, of my wife or a ministry leader, my parents as well when I'm younger or others. You see, the truth of the matter is God often asks Christians to suffer for the sake of others, to endure difficult things because God is either bringing people to faith or causing them to mature in their faith. And this is a regular habit of God we need to look no further than COVID-19. I believe COVID-19 is a plague from God sent upon the whole world because of the world's wickedness and because God wants people in this world to know that he exists. But the truth of the matter is, not all of us are wicked and deserving of a plague and many of us already know God. Yet all of us are suffering. Why? Because God often asks Christians to go through difficult things so that he can accomplish the work that he's doing. Take even the outbreak that we have going on in West Michigan currently. One article I read, and again, you can read articles that say any different thing. But one article I read said 80% of the COVID cases are the result of 20% of the people. Meaning that it's not each individual spreading it as much as it is a a smaller number of people who are not obeying the rules and not doing what they need to do, and they're responsible for spreading it to more people. Again, many people suffering because of the sins or the choices of others. I mean, we can multiply examples. The alcoholic, how much pain do the decisions to give way to alcohol cause to people around that person? The manipulative family member who wreaks havoc on holidays or, or time together or whatever because of insecurity or pride or whatever it may be. That person at work who refuses to pull their weight and so now you're having to do extra things or others are having to do extra things, suffering because of their choices. That student or students in your class who are making it very difficult to teach, making it hard for others to learn. Maybe it's that person in the small group or the ministry that you're leading who hasn't yet figured out what Hebrews 13 is talking about and has made your life more of a burden than a joy. There are countless examples of how God asks us as Christians to suffer for the sake of and because of others. And if that's your case this morning, I have a word of encouragement for you from the book of Revelation. So I'd like to invite you, if you will, take a Bible and turn to Revelation chapter six. Revelation six. It's page 994 in the church Bibles. Revelation chapter six. Now in our study of the book of Revelation, we've reached an important point. Everything that's happening from Revelation six on is future. It's not happened yet to us. Some of the stuff we've talked about in Revelation, the letters to the churches, these were written to churches that existed in the past. Everything we're going to get to from this point on is future. It's still to come. Now there are two ways to read the book of Revelation when it comes to reading future passages. One way is you can read them and try to piece together a very detailed explanation and timeline of what is going to happen in the future. We are not reading the book of Revelation that way. The second thing you can do, which is what we are doing, is you can read about what is coming in the future and understand how that is speaking to the present. Because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the stuff that Jesus will do in the future reveals his character to us And we find some similarities between what is coming in the future and what is happening today. And we can understand from what will happen in the future how God is interacting with us today. So let me be very clear. COVID-19, which I think is a plague from God, is not a book of Revelation end time plague event. It is like what will be coming later in the book of Revelation. And as we see plagues mentioned in Revelation and that we understand that in the future God will implore plagues to try to get people's attention and to discipline and punish the wicked, we can understand that in this plague God is doing something similar. You with me? One more thing just to be clear In the book of Revelation, we are not doing an end times study. I did produce a sheet to kind of explain how I think the end times work themselves out. One thing that the book of Revelation does not talk about is something that we know of as the rapture or the idea that Christians, you and I, will not be here on earth for all of the events that are going to happen in the future. I just need to tell you as we get to Revelation 6, we're not going through all of the details, but we're going to read about some things happening. We will not be here for those things, but other Christians will be, meaning there will be people who become Christians after the rapture happens, and they will go through some things. And because they're Christians like we're Christians, we can connect with what they're going through and relate it to what we're going through. All right, with that in mind, we dive into Revelation 6 and begin the future. Verse 1, John says, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. The Lamb is Jesus. In Revelation 4 and 5, a door was opened to heaven, and we got to see the throne room of God. In that throne room, God the Father is seated on the throne and he's holding a scroll. It's Daniel's scroll and it is God's decree of what the future will be like. When God prophesied that to Daniel, Daniel wrote it down, rolled it up and sealed it. Meaning that none of those things would come to pass until the seals were broken. And the scene we saw last week in Revelation 5 is John was weeping because nobody in heaven or on earth or under the earth was found who was worthy to break the seals. The reason that's a problem is the scroll has the future and the future is resurrection and eternal life and punishment for the wicked and the removal of the presence of sin, all the things that those who believe in Jesus long for, all wrapped up and cannot come to pass. But we celebrated that there is one who is worthy Jesus, who willingly submitted to the Father's plan to suffer and die for us. He is the Lamb who looks as if he was slain, who's worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Well, in Revelation 6, the future begins when Jesus starts breaking the seals. These are the seals on the scroll, and as he breaks them, the future that God has decreed begins to come to pass. In Revelation 6, we have the first six of seven seals. The first one is broken in chapter verse one. The result is in verse two. I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. We don't know the details of how all of this will work itself out, but this represents... Some sort of political leader or leaders like Pharaoh or Sennacherib, those who are leading powerful governments and they are bent on conquest, meaning they are oppressing Christians and causing life to be difficult using the levers of government and power to cause that to happen. Now this hasn't happened yet. But all you have to do is look around the world today to see people in positions of authority and power who are bent on conquest and who want to use the levers of government and power to oppress and marginalize and repress Christians. When Jesus opens this seal, some of the things we see happening now will happen, but in a far greater degree. That's the first seal. Governments oppressing Christians. The second seal is opened in verse three and its results happen in verse four. Another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. This represents the persecution and martyrdom Of Christians, people being killed for their faith. Jesus opens the third seal in chapter 5, verse, sorry, in verse 5, verse 6. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, and six pounds of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. This is a famine. And the famine is especially harmful for Christians who because of the first two seals are excluded from the halls of power. They're not engaged in the decision-making process and have a more difficult time in getting access to food. And so they are suffering in the midst of this famine. The fourth seal is broken in verse seven and its results are in verse eight. I looked and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. That one is as it is said. Death comes. To non-Christians but also to Christians. Now, you may ask, how do I know that these first four seals are causing Christians to suffer? Well, seal five is the key. Seal five is the key, and you know that because nothing actually happens with seal five. Seal five is broken, and what we are given is a vision of what is going on in heaven. And it explains what we just saw in the first four seals. Look at it with me. Verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, how long sovereign Lord, holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed, just as they had been. The fifth seal is talking about the fact that it's Christians who have been martyred and who have suffered under these first four seals. It becomes explicit if you look in verse 9. Do you see the word slain? It's near the end of the first sentence there. The altar of the soul, the souls of those who had been slain. You see that word? That's the exact same word as in verse 4 in seal number 2 to make people kill each other. Those are the same words and the idea is is the people in seal 5 are those who were killed or persecuted in seal number two. Likewise, if you look in verse 11, the word killed right near the end of the last sentence of verse 11, do you see that word? That's a different Greek word than the word for slain, but it's the same Greek word as the one used in verse number eight a fourth of the earth, to kill by sword. The people who have died in, in, in seal two and seal four are those who are present in heaven in seal five. This tells us that these first four seals are especially aimed at Christians Suffering that Christians are going through difficult things during these first four seals. The fifth seal explains that to us and also lets us know the reason why. It says, Until the full number of your brothers and sisters come in, meaning God is doing this so that non Christians can be saved that God is causing there to be suffering on the earth, but especially towards Christians, so that non-Christians will have an opportunity to see and believe and be saved. Do you see this word in verse number nine, because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained? That testimony is the Greek word from which we get the word martyr, This is the passage we get the word martyr from. These are people who were killed for their faith. You may know that the first martyr, the first person to die for being a Christian in history, not Jesus, Jesus died so we could become Christians, but the first person to die for being a Christian is a man named Stephen. And he is put to death in Acts chapter seven. And while he is being killed, heaven is open wide. And Jesus is watching this happen. And Stephen sees him. And you think to yourself, Jesus, you could come down and stop this. You could rescue Stephen. But he doesn't. Why not? Because it was necessary for Stephen to die... So that the Apostle Paul could come to faith. His name was Saul at that point, but he's participating in the martyrdom of Stephen and God will use that to bring the Apostle Paul to faith. That's what's happening in Revelation 6, but on a worldwide scale. God is asking Christians to suffer for the sake of non-Christians. So that they might come to faith. You can also see that we're talking about especially Christians in the first four seals, because when you get to the sixth seal, it is non Christians, and you can hear the difference in the language. Verse 12 I watched as he opened the sixth seal, there was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else... Those are non-Christians. Both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. No Christian would ever ask to be hidden from Jesus. For the great day of their wrath has come. Who can withstand it? So when Jesus opens the sixth seal, he begins to pour out his wrath on an unbelieving planet. But here's the important point. Before Jesus does that, four seals result in suffering for Christians. I don't know about you, but I think to myself, Jesus takes the scroll and he starts breaking the seals and all of a sudden all you have pouring out is blessing and goodness. These are the promises of God, but that's not how it works. When Jesus opens these seals, the first four things that happen cause suffering for Christians because that's how God works. He often asks Christians to suffer for others so that he can bring them to faith and he can cause them to grow in maturity. If Abe hadn't been willing to suffer for my sins, I wouldn't be here today. If Lisa, my parents, and others hadn't been willing to suffer, God couldn't have led me to faith and done the things that he's done in me. Jesus regularly asks us to suffer so that he can bless others. It will be that way in the end. It is that way now. And so if you are a person who today are being asked to suffer not because of your wickedness, but because of the sins of others, so that God might accomplish what he wants to accomplish. I have three words of encouragement for you. The first comes out of Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And here is the first word of encouragement to any who are here suffering for the sake of others. You can rejoice that your suffering is not in vain. We're not rejoicing at the suffering. Suffering is hard. It is difficult. Nobody likes it. Nobody wants to go through it. But you can rejoice that you are not suffering in vain. That if you are suffering because of the sins of another person, if you are going through difficult things because of the choices of others, if you are suffering while God pours out a plague on the earth, you can rejoice even in the difficulty because it is not in vain. Do you see what Paul says here? It's jaw-dropping. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Again, if it wasn't in the scriptures, we might think that was heretical. Paul has said Jesus didn't suffer enough. What he means is, in order for God to bring people to faith, Jesus had to die for all of humanity. However, in order to bring that salvation to people, others have to suffer as well. And that those who are part of the body of Christ, Jesus is continuing to suffer in and through us and we are filling out the rest of the suffering that Jesus needs to do so that God the Father can accomplish his plans and purposes. Stephen suffered so Paul could come to faith. Paul is suffering so the Colossians can come to faith. You and I are suffering so others can come to faith and can grow in their faith as well. And so whatever you're going through, you can have rejoicing that it's not in vain. It doesn't make the suffering go away, but it reminds you it's not futile. It's not just bad luck. It's not some random thing that happened. You are suffering for someone else because of someone else. But that's part of God's plan. The second word of encouragement. Trust God. First Peter 2 says this. If you suffer for doing good and you endure it, this is commendable before God. To this you were called, called to suffer for doing good because Christ suffered for you leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, what did Jesus do? He entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus trusted God. There's two things to get out of the book of Revelation. It's one, God knows what he's doing. We think right now that God has lost it. We think that that everything's out of control. You read the book of Revelation and you realize, oh, no, 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 no. God has got a plan and he has been planning what he's doing since the beginning of time and it is an amazing, brilliant, unbelievably great plan. And the second thing, if you get nothing else out of the book of Revelation, look how it turns out for Jesus. Jesus, who is glorified and worshipped forever and ever, this one who was despised and rejected, He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, glorified forever and ever. And the book of Revelation is about God the Father knows what he's doing and Jesus is rewarded for all of his suffering. And the encouragement to you and I is we can trust God. I don't know how it's gonna work out for the difficulties you're going through because people at your workplace have made poor choices. I don't know how it's going to work out because you happen to be married to somebody who's an alcoholic. I don't know how it's going to work out because you are around somebody who has not been very careful and they've caught COVID and they might be exposing you to it. I don't know how all of those things are going to work out. But I do know you can trust God. I do know that he knows what he's doing. I do know how it turned out for Jesus and he was willing to suffer for you and for me and God took care of him. Now listen, when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he doesn't know how this is all gonna work out. He's he's frightened, he's scared of death that is coming. But he chooses at that moment to trust his father. And as you stare out into the abyss of suffering, as you think, I don't know how I can go back into lockdown. I don't know how I can get through all of all these things. I've been careful, I haven't tried to spread it to all these people. I don't know how I'm gonna do it. This isn't my fault. As you think to yourself, I don't know how I'm going to raise this strong-willed, difficult child. I've tried to love this child and do everything I can for this child. As you stare out into the abyss and you think to yourself, how in the world am I going to teach these classes? These kids do not listen. They do not obey. They are making my life miserable. As you stare out into that abyss and not know what's on the other side, you can trust your heavenly father. He knows what he's doing. He will not abandon you. He will not forsake you. It will turn out for your good. I don't know how it's gonna turn out, but it's gonna be okay. The third piece of encouragement, if you're suffering for the sake of others, is that Jesus himself will give you strength. One of the reasons Jesus chose to suffer for us was so that he could be a merciful and faithful high priest. Meaning he knows that when you are suffering for other people, there is a special burden that goes with that. He knows what it's like to think, but what if none of these people accept the benefits of what I'm going through? Imagine dying on a cross and having nobody accept it. Jesus knows the fear. What if I go through all this stuff? What if I stick with this person who's having an affair? What if, I, what if I stay with this classroom that's been assigned to me? What if I keep working at this workplace where they treat me poorly for being a Christian? What if I do all these things and nobody comes to faith? What if I do all this stuff and nobody grows? What if I don't get an email 30 some years later, from a person saying, Thank you for putting up with me. What if that never happens? Jesus knows how that feels. He knows those fears and those worries. He knows that when you're in the middle of suffering, sometimes you think, I just can't go on. He knows what it's like to be in the Garden of Gethsemane and to be out of strength. And to think, I just, I can't go another day. And his promise is that he will give you the strength. Jesus says, I'm your good shepherd. I will lead you to green pastures and beside still waters. In the presence of your enemies, I'll prepare a table before you when you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you won't have to fear anything, because I will be with you. And I will bring goodness and mercy all the days of your life. So those of you especially who are exhausted, who are frustrated, who are confused, who can't see how God might bring good for others out of what you're going through. Jesus knows how all of that feels. And he will guide you and strengthen you for the journey. So the conclusion in summary is this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Look what God brought about for Jesus because he was willing to suffer for you and I. Know that you can trust the Lord through all these things and be assured that because Jesus knows what you are going through, he will not leave you or abandon you or forsake you. We'd like to think, that to follow God means everything's roses. It all goes smoothly. We'd even like to think that if there's bad stuff in the world, it's only because of everybody else. But here, when Jesus opens the seals, he's asking Christians, will you follow in my footsteps? I suffered to bring you to faith. Will you suffer so I can bring others to faith? Stephen died so that Paul could become a Christian. Paul died so that others could become Christians. In the end of time, God will ask countless people, will you be willing to suffer for the sake of others? And God's doing the same thing today. Let's pray together. Thank you so much for joining us for this podcast from Calvary Church. We hope this message has brought the light and hope of God's presence into your life, refreshing your soul for the journey the Lord has you on. If you have a spiritual need or would like to connect further with the work God is doing through Calvary Church, seek us out online at calvarygr.org. On our website, you can also find an archive of previous messages from this series. Thanks for listening.